welcome back to another episode of Endurance Icons, where we sit down with individuals crushing it in the wide world of endurance sports. We're your hosts, as always, Mark and Jess Cullen, and we have an awesome episode for you today with Australian professional triathlete Renee Kiley, who also has a very inspirational story of her path to becoming a pro triathlete, which we're so excited to dive into today with her. Welcome, Renee. How you doing? I'm fine. I'm actually happy to talk to you guys today because I haven't had much social contact in the last two or three weeks. I'm at a training center in France um, and not with anyone I know. So it's really lovely to chat to you. <laughs> so why did you choose this spot in France for a training camp? Oh gosh, that's a bit of a long story, but I, as Australians coming to Europe, we can spend 90 days in Europe without a visa. And I knew that I wanted to be here longer than 90 days this year. So France has um, a pretty good visa for professional athletes. So I was fortunate enough to be able to get a French visa, which meant I could spend six months in France. Um, so I did two and a half months in Switzerland, in St. Moritz in Switzerland prior to here. And then, yeah, the French portion was like the end of the trip. And it's like the perfect place for training and it's at altitude and the center is like great, like really convenient. But I just, this year, I think bad planning on my behalf. I just didn't plan this stint in France with any training partners. And then I've, I'm used to traveling a lot and spending like really extended periods away from home. I've done it for the last five years, but every year I've had someone, you know, like a training partner or at least like three or four people I knew in the area that you could kind of link up with for a few sessions a week but yeah here it's the last few weeks I'm like hanging by a thread and I'm really looking forward to getting home <laughs> now would you describe yourself as an introvert or an extrovert an extroverted introvert <laughs> yeah I have a lot I of like... really great ones of those in my life so <laughs> I, I'm like going like my personality outgoing and I'm happy to talk to people I make friends pretty easily and things like that but if it came down to it I think I would choose to be alone than with other people so I know that, that in saying that I know that to get to this state where I'm like really missing home and <laughs> missing training partners and stuff it's been way too for too much time alone <laughs> So you've been in Europe for a bunch of months now. When did, did you like spend the early part of the year in Australia, like doing some racing there? And then you came over to Europe? I did like, un well, fortunately, but unfortunately, the way my year tends to go is I spend usually. Usually from like May or Europe or a combination of both. Then I come home in October, November, and I have my off season then. So I like put on weight, get unfit, all that stuff like around Christmas time. And then I don't actually normally get to race a lot of the Aussie season because then I'm getting fit again in January, February, March, and I'm not really fit enough to race in Australia. So most years I'm lucky if I get one race in Australia in the early part of the year before I come overseas. And that overseas time is when I'm really fit. But I'm actually really looking forward to this year. I'm hoping to go home like end of September. So it'll probably be the earliest I've been home in three or four years and kind of had my, I'll have my mid-season, like kind of couple of weeks off then. And then 
hopefully like build the fitness back up and actually be able to race in Australia, like in November, December, January, and February next year. So I'm quite looking forward to that um, as a bit of a change up. Nice. That's exciting. And you had mentioned uh, when we were chatting before the podcast, you're in taper right now. What, uh, what do you have coming up? So I'm doing my first full distance since Kona last year. Yeah. (laughs) My, um, I've, I guess since I've been racing pro because I've been naturally always a lot better at the full distance and the half distance, I feel like I've just been racing full distances like, you know, four or five a year, every year for the last. And even when I was an amateur, actually, I did quite a lot of Ironmans. Well, I was only an amateur for three years, but I did quite a lot of Ironmans in like a two-year period. Um, So anyway, this year I just decided that I needed a bit of a break from the grind of Ironman and a bit of a mental reset. And last year racing, I raced both world champs, the one in St. George and Kona, and it was just like a huge achievement, but like a huge drain on the finances and a big, you know, mental drain, like, um, and confidence as well, because you're racing the best in the world and someone like me is never going to do great in like a top quality field like that. So yeah, I took a bit of a break from the full distance um, and I'm doing Challenge Almere, which is in the Netherlands. Um, oh my gosh, what's, yeah, it's next Saturday. The race is next Saturday, <laughs> the day before the Ironman World Champs it is. So yeah, I've just started taper for that a couple of days ago and I just feel awful today, like really, really tired. <laughs> That's all right. Get the awfulness out of the way now and then you'll be uh, chomping at it when, it when you get to the Netherlands and ready to fly. <laughs> when it counts. Now, Renee, I always love hearing the story of people who have become a professional triathlete because there's so much work and effort and and sort of like step-by-step consistent work that builds to that. But you have a really incredible story. What did life look like before you became a professional triathlete? Well, immediately before I became a professional triathlete, I was an amateur triathlete, Um, but I only raced amateur or age group for around three to three and a half years so it's been quite a um, massive trajectory I think in the last like eight years of my life so I should probably go back a step before I started racing as an amateur life um, before I discovered triathlon um, I was in a pretty bad state of health um, and when I say pretty bad like it was pretty bad. Like my blood pressure was 141 over 110. I was 105 kilograms, which I think is about 230 pounds, maybe a bit more. Smoking a packet of cigarettes a day, never heard of triathlon, never run five kilometers in my life, never ridden a bike as an adult. Hadn't swam since I was like maybe 10 years old. Um, But I was outside of that, a very successful in my career. Um, so I had, I was a co-founder of multiple small to medium sized businesses that like my business partner and I started when we were 24. Um, so pretty much like working full time, earning good money, building a business from a very, very young age. We started that business at the age of 24, but even prior to that, I was self-employed. So yeah, life before triathlon, it was basically, you could not think of something more opposite to triathlon, like the very opposite. So lots of like 
corporate lunches and all expenses trips paid and like fancy restaurants and Friday drinks and hangovers and all of that stuff, designer bags and like all this complete opposite to triathlon basically. So yeah. And the career side of it was good. Um, you know, I was financially very secure and doing well, building my own wealth and things like that, but my health was definitely suffering. And now looking back, it was, you know, I was working like 80, 90, hundred hours a week. Um, didn't have anything really outside of work. Um, and probably now, yeah, looking back was quite unhappy. And I think, um, putting myself into work probably to cover up a lot of the unhappiness that I was feeling. Um, yeah. So that was my, what my life looked like before triathlon. That was around 2013. So how did you find triathlon? Well, it's like, you know, I never used to be one of those people that believed in like the universe and how it works, but I am now. <laughs> um, I went to visit some friends in Queensland, Australia, uh, Queensland, um, in Noosa, so back at home. And when I got there, they said, oh, do you mind if we like duck down to this triathlon tomorrow, the Noosa triathlon one of our friends is doing it, doing a triathlon for the first time. We said, we'd go watch, blah, blah, blah. Do you mind? And I said, no, because I'd always liked sport, even though I was quite unhealthy at that point. I said, no, that's fine. They said, yeah, we'll just drop in for an hour. And so they see us there cheering and then we'll go. So anyway, we went and they were, of course, like off talking to their friends and stuff. And I was just standing by myself on the barrier just before they came in, all the athletes came into transition. And if anyone knows of the Noosa Triathlon, it's the biggest triathlon in the Southern Hemisphere. It's like huge, yeah. So I was just standing there and I uh, I couldn't have looked more out of place. I had like dark brown hair extensions halfway down my back and fake tan and a designer like maxi dress. <laughs> I the, the whole time I was just thinking how I could get away for a cigarette when I was there. But I just remember having this like overwhelming feeling of, just happiness like it not I didn't feel like anyone was judging me or looking at me even though I felt really out of place there and I distinctly remember feeling that it was because like everyone just looked so happy and like they were having so much fun and I was watching people like riding into transition and they were all like smiling and there was like older people younger people like big small all different body shapes and I just remember thinking like, wow, this is, looks like such a cool sport. And like, everyone just looks like they're having so much fun and everyone's like healthy and smiling. And I just thought, oh, maybe like in, in 12 months, like if I gave myself a year, I could do this, like this triathlon next year. So I didn't tell anyone, um, but I signed, when I went home, I signed up for the Noosa triathlon in 2014, November, 2014. And that was like, I guess the first step, um, I didn't do anything. So that was in November, 2013, I went home and it was Christmas season and like drinking and socializing. So I didn't do anything about it other than sign up for the race. But then my birthday was on, is on the 1st of January and I, on the 2nd of January. So the day after my birthday, I went and walked into a bike shop, bought a $600 road bike with like the metal flat pedals and and that was when the real journey started, like at the start of 2014. So that's a big switch. And then I'm thinking about the fact that you were working, like you said, almost 100 hours a week. How did you fit in training and what sort of lifestyle changes did you need to make? 
Well, immediately, and I really, if I have one regret, it's that I didn't keep a diary of what I did in the first few months because I think like when people start the sport, they've start triathlon, most people have like run or like cycled or swam or, you know, done some sort of exercise. And, but you've got a picture like me, I like literally working, running a business for like 12 years, had not done any sport nothing like since I was a kid in high school so it wasn't like it was like googling and learning what triathlon was like what you do like what the how to do a triathlon and in those very early months I was so embarrassed by what I looked like and my weight and everything and like I literally had never run like in 12 years I'd never run so just running you know was like I had to learn how to do it, like, and what shoes you should wear and all that kind of stuff. So those first few months for me weren't about like training per se. It was more the first month I knew like I needed to quit smoking. I needed to just move. I just focused on moving twice a day. So I was still working like really big hours and I was hardly a tri like I wasn't a triathlete at that point. I was just like learning how to swim, how to bike and how to run. So in those early months, I just focused on doing something before work and after work. And that sounds like a lot, but it was like literally 20 or 30 minutes either side. Like that's all I could do at the start. So it was like, I remember I did a lot of like jogging and walking on the treadmill because I was too embarrassed to do it outside because I didn't want anyone to see me. I did a lot of like swims at lunchtime because I knew that the pool was quieter then. So I felt better going when there was no one at the pool and bike riding. I think I just like rode my bike up and down a, the straight road near my house, went along the beach um, like two or three times a week in those, those early, probably two months. Yeah. I was like, first, did my first triathlon end of March and I joined a triathlon club six weeks prior to that so yeah so for the first probably two months for me it was just about moving twice a day making better like food choices which I was doing naturally anyway because I was moving more um, and just learning about the sport and even like buying some of the basic stuff that you needed so that was the first two months before I joined a tri club. And you sort of just jumped over it, but you're like, oh yeah. And then I quit smoking. Like so many people try to do that. Like, what was that like to quit smoking? What were some of the things that you did outside of just not smoking a cigarette? <laughs> well, again, I wish I had kept a diary of exactly when I did quit, like for good. Um, but it was definitely a gradual process. So it's funny how, and this is why I'm so passionate about speaking to people about finding a passion and a way to keep your body moving because I think like when we keep get our body moving and we have those endorphins and those feelings from exercise it really does make you want to stop doing a lot of other things so for me just moving my body twice a day like I can imagine knowing myself it would have been I wouldn't have probably smoked morning and late afternoon like close to the times I was exercising but I probably in those early days was still having like the lunchtime smoke or something at work, which was habit. And eventually, like, as I started to lose the weight and get better at triathlon, it was a process like over a few months. I just, I knew there would have been a time I just stopped smoking because I was getting faster and that then overcame the like longing to smoke, if that makes sense. But mm -hmm. 
also another big thing I think with smoking or any like addiction, it's just changing your environment and some of the things that you do that are associated with the habit of smoking. So again, early days, it was like avoiding those like Friday night drinks and like those social situations where I'd be more likely to have a cigarette. Mm-hmm. So for me though, all those little things were part of it, but it all centered around moving my body because I stopped going to drinks because I wanted to exercise twice a day and I knew I'd feel like shit if I went and drank. And do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like it was just this cycle. So yeah, I think as soon as you find something that you're passionate about exercise wise, it really helps with so many aspects of your life. But you almost did like a full identity change. Like, was that difficult? Like what, what were the the steps? Like like, (laughs) talk more about that. That's like, it's just so remarkable of, of doing like, when you talk about who you were before, it doesn't surprise me because you've worked all these hours. You're hugely successful with your businesses. You're like all in, in everything that you do. So it's not surprising, but it's just to switch your identity like that. I'd love to hear a little bit more about what the process is that you went through. Yeah, I haven't thought too much about that actually, or too deeply about that. Um, But a couple of things like my whole social circles and friendship circles change that's Mm -hmm. for a start um actually like in that first 12 months I probably didn't spend a lot of time with like I was probably I didn't spend a lot of time with family anyway because I was living quite away away from them but I think in that first 12 months when you're going through such a big life change sometimes you actually do need to distance yourself um from certain people that aren't on board with it or a bit like negative because it is such a massive life change um, that you just can't have any negative energy around you when you're going through something like that so yeah I think like the family and friendship thing like I'm quite close to my family but I just didn't go to as many family functions and things like that in that first 12 months and definitely my whole social circle changed like I can't think of anyone right besides my business partner who was all I also grew up with in the tiny little town we went to school together besides him I can't think of like really anyone in my life anymore from my corporate life if that makes sense Mm -hmm. I honestly like just did a complete like made a whole new bunch of friends and who were doing what I was doing and living the kind of life that I was living Mm -hmm. and also I think like that was one big part of the identity sort of change but the second big part for me like came when I went from I I guess when I chose to race professionally Mm -hmm. I come from um, a business background where we were 24 when we started the business we grew it from zero to kind of like a 10 million dollar business like in the space of 10 years with no funding or no investors like all on our own working really really hard 30 staff by the time I left so that going from that and being like quite successful in the business world and like well known and one of the best in the country at what you do to being one of the worst again (laughs) that was like and actually it still is quite hard for me to deal with sometimes or frustrating to deal with sometimes going from being one of the best to one of the worst in a new career if that makes sense it totally makes sense now what was that process from age group 
to pro because we're we're talking about you're doing your very first race. You've just quit smoking. You've signed up for a race a year later. And then you said that you raced age group for about three years. What happened yeah. in your age group? And then what was that decision-making process where you're like, you know what? I think I can go pro in this. Well, the first, so I, I always refer to 2014 as my like transformation first triathlon year because throughout 2014 was the year I lost, you know, like, oh, I don't know what I lost, 45 kilos or something did my first sprint try, did my first Olympic try, went back to that Noosa triathlon, had a big party afterwards. So that was like quit smoking. So that was like kind of the transformation year. And then 2015, I did my first half Ironman, my second half Ironman, which I ended up coming third at my first Ironman, which I ended up winning my age group. And then six weeks after that, I went to Kona. So that was like, in my second year in the sport, that was like my year in 2015. So that was my like crazy year, like jumping up all the distances and stuff, but still at no point that year, I didn't even really follow the pro racing. I didn't really understand like who pros were. I was just like literally doing it for the fun of it. But I would say like when I went to Kona in 2015, I was, I was kind of exposed to that like world championship feel and all that kind of stuff. And then I was like, wow, like, yeah, I think I want to come back here and try and be like top five in my age group because it seems like all the top five in the age group were like kind of like semi-famous type thing back then. <laughs> so I wanted to be like one of those people. Um, so I still no thoughts of going pro. And then 2016, did my, I wanted to try and qualify for Kona again. So I did the, my third Ironman and I came third in a really competitive field I think I went 10 15 or something on a pretty hard course in Australia in Port Macquarie and it was around then that like people were like that's like pretty good time on a like really difficult course and you're such a strong biker and have you thought about going pro like blah 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 um so that's kind of like around in that preparation time and that race time was the first time I'd even really thought about it and then actually at the awards of that race, Beth McKenzie won the race that year and she got up and she was saying her winner's speech. And I always forget how old she was when I tell this story. So I hate like adding years to her age, which may not be correct, but she was up giving her winner's speech. And she said, if someone had told me, you know, like five years or 10 years ago at the age of, 38 I would be up here like winning an Ironman as a professional I would have said they were crazy and I just had it was like that Noosa triathlon moment like another light bulb moment where I was like wow like I didn't even understand that women competed at that age like as professionals because I just didn't follow the professional racing so then I went back home and started looking up the pros and stuff like that and seeing that like most of the women who were like doing really well were like late 30s. And I think at that point I was like 33. So it was like completely shocked and I just couldn't stop thinking about it. And I thought about it for like two or three days, like in my own head, like, could I do this for a job every day? How would I do this financially? How could it work at work? And I just kept coming back to the fact that I was two and a half years into the sport and achieving the things that I was achieving. Like imagine what could be possible in a few more years. And especially if I didn't have to work as much, like if I could train 
some more like how good could I get so you know the cliche saying like if you can't stop thinking about it then you know it's important but it literally that was what it was like so I made that decision middle of 2016 um around to that yeah middle of 2016 I made that decision in my head didn't tell anyone because I didn't want anyone to tell me that I wasn't good enough or I couldn't do it um sat down with my business partner and said hey I uh think I want to have a go at racing professionally and he was super supportive and we figured out a way that I could cut back to work three days a week if I got if I got my pro license I could cut back to work three days a week so the rest of 2016 became about you know like working towards getting my um, pro license so early I did Kona again in 2016 and then early the following year in 2017 I raced a 70.3 was first age grouper overall and that qualified me for my pro license so I took my pro license at the end of 2017. Amazing like what an incredible journey and so how does it work today with your business? Okay, you so it's still a part of uh, your day to day. No, not anymore. No, it's definitely not anymore. So in 2000 and end of 2017, I took my pro license. I went and did my first two pro races, 70.3s in Europe. And I came last and second last in those two races. I was still working, uh, I think, full time at that point or maybe four days a week something like that anyway I just was so disgusted by coming like last and second last in those races like obviously it was a huge shock to the system no one told me how different racing in the pro field is the age group field that was number one but secondly I was disgusted at coming that that doing that bad so I rang my coach after that second race and I just said I'm not doing it unless I can like train full-time I'm not interested in racing professionally because I just, I cannot compete with these women, especially with my background, unless I'm able to train full time. So I sat down with my business partner again, when I got back to Australia and just said, I can't, I can't do this. So he actually, I'm so, so lucky. Obviously we'd known each other for our entire lives. So 30 odd years and started this business together and everything. So we had a really good relationship, more like family. But he came back after thinking about it and said to me, okay, how about you can step out of the business as of the 1st of January, 2018 for four years. Um, so obviously without pay or anything like that, but I could just step back from the business and retain my shareholding in the business for four years. And at the end of the four years, I had to either come back full time or I had to sell down my shares in the business so that was 89 20 end of 2021 I had to make a decision on that and here I am still doing triathlon <laughs> so yeah it was like it wasn't a, I mean it was like sad in its own way because I really did love my job and it was like a business that we'd created and I love yeah I loved it it was I didn't hate it it was just that I discovered triathlon so it was quite a sad process letting go of that. But yeah, I, I decided to step out of the business 100% at the end of 2021. So I sold down all my shares at the start of last year. And now I'm, um, so I hadn't been working full time in that business for three or four years, but now I'm officially like not even a shareholder or anything anymore. I'm completely exited from the business. 
So from your business days, you were obviously very successful in your time in business. Are there some key things that you brought over from that experience that you think really help you to make it as a professional triathlete, like on the business side of things, or just even as an athlete, either side? (laughs) I actually think like, it's uncanny how like similar it is, like being an entrepreneur or business owner and being a professional triathlete. I actually don't think there's any traits that aren't matched. (laughs) It's like, yeah, definitely like resilience, like early days in the business. It's like literally door knocking, getting rejected all the time, like dealing with failure, dealing with having no money, like all that, all the exact same things that you deal with being a professional triathlete. So that um, I can imagine some people would find really difficult if they've never experienced that before, but I feel like I had done like 12, 13, 14 years of that. So it was just like kind of starting all over again. Um, And definitely like the structure and discipline, like same thing, like as a business owner, you're getting pulled in all different directions all the time, having to make decisions all the time, adapt and change all the time. Um, And that's all the things you have to do as a professional athlete as well. So yeah, I think my business background has really served me well, like crossing over to being a professional triathlete. Very cool. And um, I I find I wanted to comment on your hat um, because uh, yeah. you have the, the tagline, be better. Um, mm-hmm. And that sort of ties into all the work that you did as an entrepreneur, as a triathlete. It sort of seems like your, your phrase. How did you come to that? And talk to us a little bit about be better. Yeah, I think like we should just want to be the best version of ourselves. And I think that comes, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean the best athlete, like the best mom, the best friend, the best daughter, like in all our, all aspects of life, it's just a reminder, like we get complacent and we just kind of like go through the motions in life. And I think we should always be reflecting on like, are we being the best versions of ourselves? And I don't want this to sound like, condescending or just dismissive but I just hate ordinary you know like I hate it I just never want my life to be ordinary I just I even used to say to my business partner I just never want to be and this is not having a dig at people on different incomes all that kind of stuff like it's just purely about my experiences but I used to say to him like I just never want to be in a situation where I'm just like getting a paycheck every week And that's all I can earn every week. Like I know I'm going to get that $500 and I put X in savings and X amount goes to food. Like I just can't imagine living like that and not having control over your destiny, if that makes sense. Or yeah. So I think like be better is just being the best version of yourself, like constantly trying to improve, make better choices, make better decisions, be a better person, listen more. It's just that all encompassing thing. And another part of it that's really important to me is like not having this life of fives, um, you know, like this gray area life where some people choose that and that's fine. Like, cause they're happy just knowing what's going to happen every day and being at a five their entire life. But I just think like having exposure to being able to experience tens, like the, those highs and those like, super amazing moments it's worth experiencing some ones and twos you know like because you just can't beat the feeling of those 10 so I would prefer to live like that than live in this like life of five and gray all the time so I think that's part of it too 
I love it. Yeah, heck yeah, that's awesome. Um, let's hop it. Let's hop into a little bit more of uh, present day Renee and uh, Renee the athlete here. Um, so I, you mentioned your coach a little bit. Are you still working with a coach these days? And if so, uh, who do you work with? Well, I'll say it in the Australian accent, <laughs> my coach is Harold Whiten, which that's yep. probably not how you say it. You probably say Harold Whiten or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, he's based in Norway and people might know him as a sports director of the Norwegian Federation. So mm -hmm. we've been working together since I think about February last year. So maybe 18 months now. Very cool. And why did you choose him? I actually chose him because I listened to, well, for a start, obviously we saw like Gustav and Christian's success and how well they were doing, but that really wasn't the reason that their success is what just led me to know that he was their coach. And then I started listening to his podcast. And first of all, I really resonated with the training philosophy, which seemed to be listening from the outside, like a focus on high volume and um, intensity control in training. And they were like two things. Well, high volume is something I knew that worked for really well for me. And I could tolerate a lot of volume from the very time I started doing triathlon and the intensity control part of it resonated with me because I felt like in my prior situation that I was doing like all my training too hard, like hard, hard, hard all the time. Um, so when I heard him talking about intensity control, that was something that really made me curious. But that was all, I guess, secondary to just his personality. Like I, there was just some things that he would say like, that he didn't believe in talent and he believed in hard work and a good culture and happiness and things like that, that really like inspired me before I even switched to him. It was just like things that I would remember in my training that he said that like helped me get the best ahead of myself. So when I reached out to him, I felt incredibly fortunate that he saw me as a bit of a project. I don't know if he would stay the same now. He's probably wishing he never said yes, but yeah, he saw me as a bit of a project and I was very, I'm very, very fortunate that he said yes to taking me on. Yeah. I've always loved his content. That's so awesome. I, I wasn't aware you were working with him. That's so cool. Um, So from that intensity control side, like, do you get to see him much in person or does he get you to do like a bunch of lactate testing or is he, how does he can kind of uh make sure that you're controlling that intensity? What metrics do you use? Yeah, just lactate. Um, it's actually a lot, like a lot less sciencey than people make out. Like I think in media, like may maybe it's more sciencey when you're working with Olab directly, you know, and He's with them 24 hours a day, seven days a week. But with Arold, it's like remote coaching. And that was something he said to me up front was that he's like extremely busy with his other roles in the Federation. And so, so I had to be prepared to like do a lot of the stuff on my own, which was totally fine. So yeah, intensity control is lactate. So it was actually, it didn't take me long to learn about it. Like within a month, I felt like I had my head around it pretty well. And I take lactate in probably three sessions a week. So it's not even that much, just key sessions, like threshold sessions. And it's just maybe sometimes I take it once, maybe sometimes I take it twice. Sometimes now I actually take it when he doesn't ask me to, just because I'm curious myself, because I have a good understanding of it now. Um, so yeah, it's been all remote, but actually I was lucky enough to meet him here and he was here with the national team in Font Romer in early July. 
So, and that lined up with when I was coming here anyway. So I was fortunate enough that I got to spend a week with him with the first time I met him. So that was really, really nice to actually get to meet him in person. That's very cool. Do you find by now, like taking so many of those readings that like you could almost predict what it's going to say ahead of time? A hundred percent. Yeah. Like literally there's some sessions where I, I don't even like there's been there's probably one session a month where I'm supposed to take it where I don't even take it. Cause I just, I like, I literally know exactly where it's going to be at, but yeah, like I can, if I'm doing threshold efforts on the bike now, I can tell like your heart rate doesn't necessarily, I find my heart rate can like vary up to probably 10 beats for the same lactate reading. So sometimes I'll look at my heart rate and it's like quite low, but I feel like I'm working like quite hard. So even though my heart rate's low, I'm like, no, I'm pretty confident I'm in the right lactate range. Like it feels hard, even though the heart rate's not high. So yeah, I reckon if someone asked me at any moment in training, I could within like 0.1 of a millimole, I could probably guess what my lactate is. Yeah, it's so cool. I think that's such an important thing. Like athletes, the data and stuff is great. But in the end, like if you can trust your intuition, like if your bike computer isn't working in a race or your GPS watch isn't working, you need to be able to rely on what that feeling is so important. Oh, totally. And like, to be honest, there's some sessions where, you know, I might be being a female, we get a bit emotional sometimes when we're tired and fatigued and stuff like that. Well, males do too, I think, but females are just more happy to admit it. Um, but yeah, <laughs> there's like, <laughs> there's certain times in training where it's not often, but like once every couple of months or something like that, I'm grumpy, I'm tired, and I just don't want to see the numbers for whatever reason, you know, but that's where, where it comes back to knowing the feeling. Like I can go out there. There's been a few times, especially at altitude when you're like extra tired and stuff. I've just gone out and done my track session and look gone, you know, well, I'm not even taking the lactate meter and stuff because like, I feel like one more little bad thing could send me over the edge right now. <laughs> it's a bad reading. I might not come back from this. So how about we just leave the lactate meter and stuff at home and we'll go by feeling today. So yeah, there's definitely times every couple of months where you need to do that. So people make the mistake. I think it just gets all this, this misconception in the media, like science, 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 and, rely on numbers and stuff like it's not like that at all and Arrow's definitely not as sciencey as everyone thinks and it's still a lot by like how are you feeling in the session mm -hmm. did it correlate with the readings don't worry about yeah like on those days where you don't want to it's fine not a problem as long as you go out and do the work so mm -hmm. yeah you definitely your personal feeling takes precedence over everything else yeah. Well said hundred percent. I love, I love that. The data is really just a support in the end of how we're feeling. Like people need to trust that. That's great. Thanks yes. for that insight there. I'm um, talking a little bit about altitude. Um, you've spent a ton of time at it with St. Moritz, Farmo. Like, do you have specific, are you just spending all your time there? Do you have specific periods where you just like only just drop down for races or other times where you drop down to, to maybe feel some actual air for a bit? <laughs> yeah. Gosh, it's nice. Isn't it? When you go down, um, <laughs> No, like the last four years since I've been spending these big blocks overseas, like it just so happens that the great training is in those areas, in the high altitude areas. And also like a lot of pros go and train in these high altitude. So for me, because I'm like not in a squad anymore, I'm training alone. It's nice to have other pros that, like I said at the start, you can link up a session or two every week. So I tend to gravitate towards the places at altitude and St. Moritz I've spent four summers there now so nice. 
like I know know it like the back of my hand know all the roads and that's so important when you're traveling alone it's like people don't realize how stressful it is when you're like single traveling alone you're a female with all your stuff and like just being in a new place like having to learn literally where you go out your front door to like ride your bike run how the pools work where the supermarket all that kind of stuff logistics so yeah I've spent a lot of time in St Moritz and it feels like home now I was I wanted to come here this year so I could get to know and a second place so I don't have to spend all the time in St Moritz so yeah generally when I'm overseas and actually when I'm in the US I spend a lot of time in Salt Lake City which is also at a bit of altitude so yeah I think like you get the altitude benefit um but also I've been finding I think this year and last year because I've spent so much time at altitude I think I'm getting less of a benefit when I go down to sea level Mm. I think like when you spend extended blocks at altitude like four five six months um you really have to race more often so like so you're getting down so you're breaking up the altitude more often I think you can dig yourself a bit of a hole like if you don't race for sort of six weeks and you're just doing an uninterrupted block you just have that carry that extra fatigue and tiredness from being at altitude and you can quickly get yourself into a hole so that's something I've been more conscious of this year is racing more often like and breaking up the altitude and getting away for like mini breaks and coming back but I don't know. We'll see what happens next weekend. Maybe <laughs> theory works, and, or maybe it doesn't. <laughs> and leading into races, I know everybody's a little different in like the time they like to come down from altitude before a race. Um, have you found mm-hmm. your kind of optimal recipe of the amount of days you want to come down before a race? No, I haven't. Can you <laughs> let me know what it is? Next weekend will <laughs> <No>. be the. <laughs> oh gosh, no. So it's funny. Like I really think so. It's either. I would never come down like a week before and race. I know that for sure. Like it's either a two or three day period, like come down and race within two or three days, or you come down 10 days prior and race in that 10 to 14 day window. Arold was like very big on the 10 to 14 day window, but, and that worked well last year for St. George. I did a big block in Flagstaff in Arizona. I came down to, I went down to St. George two weeks prior to the race and, that worked out pretty well. Um, but that's just not realistic when you're like overseas for five or six mm-hmm. months of the year. Like I can't be going cost of accommodation stuff yeah. like that. I can't be like going to races two weeks early every time I want to race. So when you're spending these big extended blocks with no specific goal race, I guess, um, then you kind of have to do the whole like two or three day thing. And I have my own theories on this. Like, a couple of years ago, I would go down and race on the third day and have the race of my life every time. But I think that was because I was only spending like four weeks at altitude prior. I think the longer that you spend at altitude and the longer the block is, I honestly think you have to go down that two weeks prior to get the best out of yourself. Because I've just found like I've done three races now since I've been at altitude and it's just up and down like a couple of times one time I went down I felt absolutely superhuman the day before the race and then absolute shit the day of the race yeah and then another time I felt great on the day of the race and another time I just felt like not great the whole time like even the day before or yeah so I just think it's very hit and miss when you choose to go down at the last minute so 
let's hope it's a hit next weekend. Yeah, a like. bit of a roll of the dice. That's wild. <laughs> but I also think maybe it's probably a bit different for Ironman. Like half distance, you're like operating at that like threshold mm-hmm. all day. So an Ironman's a bit different. Like you're not operating at that level. It's more like aerobic all day. So it probably doesn't, in my opinion, probably doesn't matter quite as much. I think it matters more for the half distance where you've got to like push harder. Yeah. Be a little sharper. Makes sense. Um, you mm-hmm. talked about a little bit about your, that you, that high volume approach works for you. So like, for example, maybe in this last block that you just did leading into uh challenge Almir that's coming up, what kind of volume were you kind of doing per week? And uh, what did that look like across the disciplines? Just a quick kind of, uh, <laughs> I'm sure we could a go lot. on a, for a full hour on it. But... <laughs> yeah. No, well, I do. I'll give you a swim, bike and run breakdown. Like my bike volume, I would say pretty consistently is 15 hours a week roughly two long rides in that like a five hour easy ride well I'll just break it down because it's quite simple with the bike like five hour long ride in as much hills as possible I do another four hour ride like longish ride but I like push quite a high effort up the climbs and then I do two two hour turbo sessions one VO one of those is VO2 max one of those is threshold and I do like a two hour. So the only ride I do that's like super duper easy is a two hour recovery ride every week. The rest of the rides are like some sort of like high volume or some sort of intensity or intervals in them. So around that, like 15 to 15 and a half hours on the bike, um, running varies between, I would say, 75 to 95k a week um, towards like the race you're up around 85 to 95k a week I've found with me personally I can it's funny like if someone just kept giving me run volume I could probably tolerate it I've done like plenty of weeks before where I've done 100k on 100k on 100k weeks like for five six weeks at a time and I can handle the volume no problem but it really starts to affect my biking like my legs, just the muscles break down a lot and I it really starts to affect my intervals on the bike. So we've made the decision like when even though I can do more volume, we're just not going to push the limits on the volume because then we're getting less quality in the biking. And swimming, I swim a lot, probably 25 to 30K a week as well. So five to six days a week in the pool um, and pretty much all of them are like decent quality swim. So uh, I'd say on average, like 30 to 32 hours a week. And I have every second, I have one day every fortnight completely off. Nice. Um, and swim wise, did you, have you made some like big gains over the years? Like where did you start versus where you are now? Cause that's a, definitely the, a tough one to make gains at in a very technical sport. So talk us through kind of your swim progression. Yeah, well, I think I was lucky being an Aussie kid. Um, all Aussie kids learn to swim. So yeah. that side of it, I was lucky. Like we swam, like I didn't swim like competitively or anything like that, but I swam like with a squad, you know, on Monday nights or whatever. And as Aussies, like we spend summer at school, like in PE at the pool. Mm-hmm. So all my primary school, like up till I was about 10, like, I was swimming all the time. So I knew that was like a massive bonus when I started triathlon. I hadn't swam in 20 years, but I knew how to swim. And I think that's like half the battle. As soon as you got back, I got back in the water, I like knew the movements. 
so yeah of course I was really slow when I first started I like swam one lap and I was coughing up half a lung but that was like mainly because of the smoking thing but I would say like yeah now on reflection it's funny you don't give yourself like any credit for this stuff like unless you sit and think about it but my swimming's like okay like considering my background I came out in the chase group with like Anne Haug and Laura Phillip and everyone in and Daniela in Kona last year so like you know someone of my background compared to what they've been doing their entire lives I think that's a pretty good achievement so I'm an okay swimmer um but yeah it's I think my coach before Harold made me like strong and fit with swimming, but I used to swim almost exclusively with a pool boy. So I literally felt like I couldn't swim without a pool boy. Like if I was staring down the barrel of a non-wetsuit swim, I would completely freak out because I was like, I don't even swim in training, but I was very good with a wetsuit, obviously. So when I started with Harold, he, I told him that, and he let me go with the pool boy for a while. And then I raced Ironman Montreblanc last year and it was a non-wetsuit swim. And I was in such good swim shape with the pool boy though, <laughs> prior to that race. And I just didn't like, my swim wasn't terrible, but I didn't like swim to my capability. And of course I was freaking out the day before because it was going to be a non-wetsuit swim. Um, so pretty much after that race, which is, I think it was August last year, he was like, no more pool boy the pool boy goes away now and we're learning how to swim without it so I pretty much do all my um like key sessions and like I'll do five six k sets now like no pool boy and honestly that feels like one of the biggest achievements of my triathlon career like being able to swim 25 30k a week without my pool boy as opposed to 25k every week with it um yeah it was a huge I was very very slow in the beginning so it took a lot of like self-confidence and patience and time to deal with that um but I would say yeah my swimming has jumped up another level now just in the fact mm -hmm. that I'm not a I don't care whether it's whether it's wetsuit or non-wetsuit and my times in the pool now are actually like with my pool boy or without my pool boy have come like narrowed quite significantly so yeah yeah good lesson for people you got to sometimes pull the safety net out to make that next step sometimes oh yeah it's so hard though I totally I understand know. if I don't want to <laughs> I love pull pull is so glorious but yeah agreed. So you gotta use it sparingly Seriously. and then you love that then you get that wetsuit benefit and you love it it's sweet oh sometimes now even when I'm really tired like like really fatigued and you know it's gonna be one of those days where you're gonna struggle to keep your legs on top of the water I like look at my pool boy and my swim bag and I'm like, don't even take that to the side of the pool because you just know that I'm going to reach for it. So I just leave it in my bag. Yeah. It's just talking at you, Renee. It's Take so the load glorious. off today. Bring, yeah. bring me with you. It's nice, Amy boy. It's so floaty. <laughs> Uh, too good. Um, talking about some of those other pieces around training, what's kind of your philosophy around like the day-to-day -day nutrition? Because especially somebody who's coming from, uh, like you've lost a ton of weight as you've gone into triathlon. Talk about kind of your philosophy when it comes to the day-to-day -day side of nutrition. Yeah, gosh, this is something I'm not bad at, but I also think there's things I could do to improve. I find like... I can get quite obsessive still with um, food. Like I eat, um, I eat really well and I eat nutritiously and I, I'm not one of those people that's like 
super, super clean and I won't eat any sugar or anything like that. Like I really believe you have to, you have to eat a well-balanced diet as athletes training 32 hours a week. Sometimes you just got to get the calories in and it doesn't necessarily mean they have to be great, healthy calories all the time. So I am pretty sensible when it comes to that. And I've never had a bone stress injury. I'm never sick. I've never had any other major injury. So I think that's a big indicator in itself mm-hmm. that like I'm quite healthy, but there are definitely times where, um, I fall into this belief where being leaner and skinnier is better. And I find myself getting obsessive about cutting calories and stuff like that. I can definitely go through phases like that. I've been much better with that since working with Arold. I think like it's all part of the culture and everything too. Like my last training squad, there was just always this, ingrained like culture and belief that like you had to be like a certain way to be able to run well and stuff like that so it's taken me probably 18 months to get myself out of that mindset um but look overall generally I would say like you know I'm not an expert I don't have it nailed um but I definitely think I've been able to keep myself healthy I understand the importance of fueling and eating well it's just that addictive part of me I think that still like creeps in every now and then so I just have to know how to manage it yeah for sure yeah food is an emotional attachment to it so it's a it's yes. a tough one <laughs> <laughs> um, and then another one around uh, strength training do you is that something that's uh part of your your weekly routine or or how does that play into kind of your your year your training I could tell it was a no because of the face you were making <laughs> <laughs> and that's okay I mean, it doesn't need because to be because everyone else this question and I feel really bad answering it but I shouldn't feel bad because it's different for everybody but I have like literally tried it twice like once early in my pro career and then I tried it again for maybe 14 15 months not last year the year before like full on even when I was doing it when I was still on the same program when I started with Arold so I was going to the gym twice a week with a structured program with someone that knew me very well it was like progressions every week did that for 14 months and it was really hard for me to even try that in the first place because I've never been injured I've never had any problems like that never had any like imbalances or anything like that so when you have someone like that to then try and tell them that they need to do strength training for prehab, it's kind of like, but nothing's broken right now. So, but then what if I get injured from doing strength training? I don't know. Like, so yeah, I, it was like a time where I was like, okay, let's just see if this, like can get another 1% if I do this. And I did it and I committed to it and I went twice a week for 14 months and like I just I couldn't find any correlation of where it was helping me in training and if anything I felt actually like heavier in the legs like because I'm quite muscular in my quad area so I actually felt a bit worse running like doing doing the strength training and yeah I just couldn't find that correlation where it was helping me and I still haven't had an injury or anything like that so it became a case of yeah, this is just like an extra like three hours of my week that I could be recovering or sleeping where I can find a direct correlation to helping me improve. So yeah, it's not to say that I don't think it works or anything. I just ha- haven't found it like necessary, necessary or that it works for me. Yeah, teach their own. Uh, you mentioned recovery there. What are some of your kind of uh, pillars that um, you really focus on to make sure that you're optimizing your recovery so you can do 32 hours a week? <laughs> sleep (laughs) 
Yeah, I'm like literally like a baby. I get up in the morning, I go to swimming, I come home, I eat breakfast, I get in my den. <laughs> and I then I have it. a nap. Yeah, it's so good. Like <laughs> me and a couple of my pro friends, girlfriends, we always like just love our beds so much. <laughs> Sometimes so how many I hours do you bed. sleep? Oh, uh, I I like to get eight or nine hours at night and then a one hour nap in the daytime. If I'm really, really tired, I'll sleep for two hours. But I, I normally set an alarm when I nap in the day because I get worried that I won't be able to sleep at night if I sleep too long in the day. So yeah, an hour. But like when I say sleep, I'm like lying in my bed for probably three hours, you know, like even just lying down and not doing anything or answering emails on my phone or whatever, that's recovery and resting, lying down as far as I'm concerned. So sleep is the number one I live in a really hot area in Australia and then I'm at altitude when I'm overseas so hydration is another really important one for me making sure I'm always well hydrated and just eating well they're the three big ones and oh massage for me like I don't stretch do anything like that or strength training or anything like that so body work in terms of massage is a really important one for me I get a 90 minute massage every week nice there we go. We got Renee's uh, pillars for performance there. Beautiful. <laughs> um, cool. As we wrap up here, I'd love to get um, your thoughts on just kind of some uh, some pieces around like triathlon as a whole. And I think you had some involvement with the the PTO, did you not, um, in the last year or so? What what was that yeah, kind of involvement was, look like? I was on the rankings committee. Cool. Um, so you guys probably know like the ranking system prior was based on this like time that they would make up and whatever. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so we knew that had to change. <laughs> um, so I was just really, really passionate about it. I think it was my old business background coming out in me and I really enjoyed that. It was like probably a two-year process or 18-month process. There was a committee of five or six of us that developed the new ranking system that got implemented this year. So that was a really fun project and we got a lot of good feedback about it. And it still seems like everyone's mostly positive about it. So it was, it was cool to be involved in that. Yeah. I was going to say, do you think the like current uh, rankings reflect kind of the people who should be in the, that like talk 10 to 15 or even beyond that? <laughs> I do, but I think it's a little bit biased towards the middle distance. Mm -hmm. I, like in terms of the very top tier events, um, most of them are obviously like the PTO races and stuff. So I think it is a little bit skewed at the moment. Like for example, I, I don't actually look at the rankings that all that regularly, but I noticed this week, I think Daniela's has dropped out of the top 10 and like, I know her performance has been up and down and whatever, but it, like to me, she's still a top 10 in the world oh, athlete, yeah. but I think it's just because she's only done a couple of long course races and they, yeah, like it's, it's a little bit skewed towards that middle distance at the moment, but it'll be interesting to see how this year pans out, like at the end of the year. And hopefully we can take another look at it and make some refinements. Yeah. And what are you thinking about the, uh, the announcements of like the big PTO tour and oh, stuff next year? What do you think about that? How long have we got here? Are we got to look at that? In summary. Okay. <laughs> how do we keep this right down to like one minute? <laughs> Pandora's box open. Here we go. Yes, Extend an hour. Let's do it. I love PTO are trying to raise the profile of this sport. What they are doing is incredible. I am like 110% behind it. I 110% hope that it works because it will then 
like I see the big picture, it will then benefit everyone like moving forward. The only couple of things that like I think I didn't agree with, they the end of year payments, for example, this year, they like cut the end of year payments from for everyone from 50 onwards and redistributed the payments for what were paid to 50 to 100. They redistributed that money to the top 50. And I just think like, yeah, I get it. You know, like it's the top 50 are more important than 50 to 100, but for the sake of like optics and keeping everyone happy and engaged and supporting what they're doing. Um, like I personally don't care either way about two and a half thousand dollars, whatever. But I think like the benefit of like, if they just had to kept that payment for 50, 100, those 50 to 100, they have like, thousands and thousands of Instagram followers each and friends and do you know what I mean like it just would have kept the vibe high I think mm -hmm. <laughs> like we're out of time that they need the vibe to be high mm -hmm. um so that was one thing I was like a little bit disappointed about um and the PTO tour thing I think it's awesome um but it's really disappointing that it's they're calling it long distance i'm just really afraid of what it's going to do to the sport to like the people that specialize in the in the true long distance like yeah. your joe skippers and your patrick langs and your daniela reefs and those types of athletes that really this sport has been built off the back of those athletes like if we talk about those athletes they they were actually like higher profile than any of the middle course athletes in the last few years like the sport of iron brand of Ironman triathlon whatever has been built off the back of those athletes who are long course iron distance athletes and to leave an a full distance race out of that tour or even two I just think at after the Olympics next year like this is just to me in my opinion this middle distance is an extension of an Olympic distance yeah it's not a it's not even a half distance it's like not even the half distance and I'm probably complaining because I'm not a fast athlete. It doesn't suit me and whatever. Yes, that's probably part of it. But I also think like this is supposed to be for long course athletes. And I think that I understand why they're doing the middle distance because they're saying it has to be this like cute package for like TV, three hours, three and a half hours or whatever. But I also think they could have put two long distance races in there and not televise them. Like just put them on YouTube or Facebook or whatever. And I still think they would have got a massive following because oh, people yeah. just love, they just love watching the iron distance, like yeah, Kona I mean, and Roth. They're the most, two most viewed races we have in the sport. Like yeah. the hype around them when you get all the best athletes there. And I also think how fun would it have been to see people like Ash Gentle and Paula Finlay have to think about maybe stepping up and doing these distances. Mm -hmm. Like, it's easy for everyone to go down, but it's not easy for people to come up and be successful at the full distance. So I just think, yeah, it's a little bit disappointing that they, they couldn't add it in, but I know they have said that, you know, it's not a no forever. And I'm hoping that they just need to get this off the ground and get eyeballs on the screen and interest and whatever. And maybe down the track, they can add some longer distance races into the schedule. Cool. Great insight. Thanks yeah. for sharing on that. Um, speaking of two, we have two really big long distance races coming up with men's Ironman world championship, uh, next week. And then I think we're about six weeks out from Kona as well. Do you have any predictions for us of how you see those God. races playing out or maybe, uh, podiums in there? <laughs> I knew you were going to lead to this when you started talking about it. 
I don't, I'd love to see Jan win just because it's his like last race. And I think he still has got it. Like, oh, yeah. I think he'd like be good on that course descending and everything. I like Magnus, um, just like his personality and the way he goes about things. So yeah, they're two guys that I would hope maybe be like battling for the win there. Oh, and the female race. I don't know. You can't ask me that because I have too many favorites. Like <laughs> Sky Monch is one of my best friends. I love Kat Matthews. I love Chelsea. Like these are all women that I've spent a lot of time talking to and at races and stuff. Even Laura Phillip, I see her at St. Moritz all the time. So, oh, and I've heard Taylor Nib maybe racing. Yeah, Gosh, that would be that wild. Would be... I hope she throws in the mix. That'd be so cool to see. And also, I just saw like a story before I started talking to yeah. you guys that Christian's on Christian. his way to Nice. Yeah, like... I wonder if he's actually <laughs> racing or is he just like, what's happening? Uh, surely he's not, but how good for the sport if he does? Yeah, like, that would be, be so much fun. <laughs> yeah, I know I'm planning on because my race in Almi is the day before. So I can't wait to be in that like post iron distance, like lob phase like lying yeah. on the bed and eating and watching that race all day <laughs> but yeah the the uh the women's race i'm like a through and through daniela fan too like i would just love to see i don't know if she's retiring or not but i just get this feeling that she might be at their last bit of her career too so i would just love to see her have an amazing race at kona and smash her that would be pretty cool just Jan and Daniela victories, and then they both Jan retire. And Danny, How epic yeah. would that be? Oh, and that would be so amazing. Yeah, totally old school. And they both go down as the goats, and no one could complain, or no one could like argue it. Yeah, exactly. I feel like Christian's angry from the PTO race, and he's like, I'm going to sign up now, and I'm going to go race Jan and get my revenge. He's so competitive, isn't he? Like, if that's, like, one trait, like, I think we're all competitive, but he's, like, next level, obsessive competitive. Like, that's such a cool trait, watching him race. He's such a racer. Yeah, so good for the sword. He's awesome. Um, all right, final question kind of for you here is uh, looking forward to the future. What are some uh, some of the big goals you still have to knock off the list and maybe some uh, races or events that really get you excited for the future that are that are pulling you? Well, my I've ticked off all my goals. The only one I haven't ticked off is winning a full distance race. So I feel like that's I've almost given up on that, like in this last 12 months. And I mean that like seriously, it's the level of the sport now. It's just every time you think you're making progress, then you watch a race and the women are just smashed it out of the park and you're just like, oh my God, why am I even bothering? <laughs> um, but yeah, one big dream of mine in the last couple of years has been to win a full distance race. So I keep trying, we'll keep trying for a little bit. Um, but in terms of goals in the near future, like I would like to qualify for Nice next year um and I have to say that like I've had a lot of moments this year thinking about how much longer I'll race professionally for so I don't have lots of goals as I said like I've ticked most of them off I'd love to win that full distance I'd love to like race in Nice next year and who knows maybe that could be like the end of my professional career too I'm not sure I've just found that this year I've had more moments where I've started imagining life not racing professionally and people say to me oh how like you've only been doing this for such a short time or don't worry about your age and for me it's not an age thing at all I think it's actually because I had a career and I know what life 
can be like and I'm not afraid of retiring I'm not afraid of like working again or anything you know I'm I think a lot of athletes don't retire because they don't know what they will do with themselves and they don't know any different because they've only ever been an athlete um I'm not afraid of that so I think that's part of it and I've also crammed a hell of a lot in the last mm-hmm eight or nine years so I think I'm getting a bit tired (laughs) but we'll see yeah the immediate goals win a full distance qualify for Nice next year and then get through next year and reassess where I'm at in life I think follow-up question to that because you've done so much before being a pro triathlete what do you envision life being like after you retire Actually, like, I get probably, I don't want to admit this, but I probably get way too excited thinking about what life will be like now because my life was awesome, except I was unhealthy. So I just imagine how cool would it be to be successful in my whatever career I choose to do, but also like go and ride my bike like a few times a week. So I love riding my bike just for fun when I feel like it. And just like going to swim squad with my buddies and having coffee after like, and then not if I don't feel like it, like I just, yeah, to me, that life seems really appealing. Like, um, because as I said, yeah, I, I know it can be so good on the corporate and career side of things. So yeah, I don't know, career-wise, like, I, I don't think people say to me all the time, oh, you've never worked for anyone, you've always been self-employed, run a business, whatever, you'll, you'll do that again. But I don't know, like, I don't think I've got it in me again to, you know, like, work really hard and start from scratch again. I think I would like to see what life is when it's a little bit more balanced. Like, I, I don't know what it's like to work 30 or 40 hours a week and have a hobby and sport and stuff outside of it. So the thought of what that excites me. Well, I'm sure whatever you do, you're going to be successful in it. Your taglines be better. So I just, I love that mentality of you wake up every single day and try to be better at everything. It's just that continuous improvement. It's going to get you far because it has, I mean, look at the, like you've had probably like your whole comment of like, I just don't want to be ordinary. There hasn't been like one moment of your life that has been ordinary. So it's just been so cool hearing your story today. It's why we brought you on because you're our endurance icon, but I'd love to know who's yours. I can't split it between two people. One of them is Lauren. I can have two. Yeah. Lauren Parker. Well, too bad because I'm having two. Lauren (laughs) Parker. (laughs) Lauren Parker. You might've heard of her. Yeah. Actually we had the same coach as age groupers. We went to Kona as age groupers. She had a terrible accident and I just, I can't even fathom like what it must be like to be her every day and what she's achieving now after what she went through. Like, you know, when you have those moments at your home and like you, you imagine that like someone, you know, dies or something and how you might feel or whatever. Like I, if you just sit there and imagine Lauren, like 20 something years old, having this massive bike crash, becoming paralyzed. Like, I feel like I would just want to die. Like I wouldn't want to do anything. So Whenever I need to get some perspective in life, I try and think about her. Um, but my other big, like, icon, I think, is Lionel Sanders because, mm. like, everyone loves Lionel, but I freaking love Lionel so <laughs> much. Like, I think I resonate extra with him because, like, he's 
background and he was in a really bad, like triathlon saved his life. And I feel like triathlon saved my life. Um, we were both in different ways in a pretty bad state of health. And this sport has like literally changed our life and saved our lives. So yeah. And he's just so vulnerable and people don't understand, like they think, Oh, this, some people are just YouTubers or they like do heaps of stuff on social media for attention. It's actually not about that at all. It's about like trying to reach as many people as possible and make a difference to, to people's lives. And so they can see all aspects of someone's life and being vulnerable and being honest. So I really love that about Lionel. I love that. And speaking of following a journey, where can people follow yours? When I'm really happy and in a good headspace, I post a lot on Instagram. I share <laughs> a lot of my life on Instagram. Um, no, but in all honesty, like I share workouts and stuff like that, but I also share just like the random day-to-day, -day, like normal type stuff. So Instagram is definitely where I'm most active and Strava a little bit as well. Um, yeah. And if you know, if I'm not active on Instagram, then something's wrong with me. <laughs> I saw lots of stories today. So you're, you must be in a good headspace for a week. Today out from a race. I love it. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but last week, however, there was definitely a hiatus for about seven days there. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> well, good to know. We'll check in when you go silent. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Thank you. <laughs> well, wishing you all the best in the upcoming race. We, we look forward to watching that and following the rest of your journey, but thank you so much for coming on the show. This was such a, such a pleasure to be able to talk to you. I really enjoyed it. Wow. How great was that? I always learned so much from these endurance icons. If you enjoyed the podcast as well, please consider liking us across social media, subscribing to us on YouTube, or giving us a five-star rating on wherever you listen to your podcasts. We appreciate you and your support so much. We wish you happy training and we'll see you back next week.